Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash CTP. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer. Welcome to this Peer Voice on Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Okay, my short uh, introduction uh, just to, to show the obvious. And the obvious is that, again, the androgen receptor axis is very, very big for vast disease for prostate cancer. We know this for decades but we now have strong evidence that we can uh, achieve a better job with second-generation AR antagonists or, um, or hormone or ligands in general, uh, biosynthesis inhibitors, and uh, this was shown at different settings of the disease, uh, as you probably all know. All right. Having said that, when it comes to patients, androgen deprivation therapy, and it's also true uh, about some of the drugs we're using, uh, they actually have side effects. And I like, in general, when I speak to my patients, I really separate what are the early and very obvious side effects, libido decrease, erectile dysfunction, and hot flushes. This typically occurs within weeks or months after the start, and, and Really, people can feel it, mostly. As opposed to the late side effects that typically patients do not necessarily feel, but they can be actually uh, an issue uh, for their health. Uh, musculoskeletal, osteoporosis, fatigue, of course, they can report it. Cardiovascular morbidity, they don't necessarily think about it. Metabolic effects, same thing. And neurological side effects, they don't necessarily make a link between the treatment and those side effects. But they are important, so we're trying our best to prevent them, and we'll come back to that, and to monitor them. And I think we, we should really emphasize how important this is in, in clinical practice. So uh, the first part of this presentation and, and discussion really is us thinking about the patient's journey and how this has evolved over time. And as you can see in the landscape, which I think we're all familiar with, uh, it, it has evolved so much in the last few years. This is a focus on registration trials that have really uh, led to new approvals in this space for metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. And as we can see, it's really increased in complexity from that initial discussion about docetaxel with the GTUG AFU-15 study, and then ongoing data around chemotherapy in addition to ADT, and now has expanded to combinations of ADT and AR-targeted agents, ADT and docetaxel, and then even adding darolutamide or abiraterone in, in a combination with ADT and docetaxel for patients and the complexity will continue to grow. And so the things that we hope to discuss and explore today are, are how we think about the effectiveness of these therapies when we're sitting in clinic with a patient and trying to make those choices with him. And whether there's still a role for ADT monotherapy, I think we'll all have something to say about that. So let's start by talking about a patient case. 
This is a 51-year-old man who unfortunately had a PSA of 30 that prompted imaging and a demonstration of two retroperitoneal lymph nodes as well as a bone scan that demonstrated two bone metastases in ribs. He had a Gleason score on biopsy of eight and had had no prior history of, of prostate cancer diagnosis or treatment. So he is diagnosed with de novo metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer at a very young age. So we have our first poll question here. Would you scan this patient using a PSMA PET? He's already had bone scan and CT scan. Take a moment and let us know what you think. Okay. So it looks like, I think, uh, it looks like 70% of people or so say yes, they would get a PSMA PET. And so that must mean around 30% of people are saying no. Uh, and I'd love to hear from my colleagues here. Uh, Bertrand, what do you think? I mean, we, we can be happy that the patient had a bone scan and a CT scan to start with because what we see now is a patient just having a PET PSMA. So you can argue that in a PET PSMA you've got a CT. But you know the technology is there. We may be uncomfortable uh, on uh, how to use it, but why would we deny a extensive... Uh, you know, an, an extensive and precise evaluation for that patient. Uh, it's not because we have no clue about the impact on reclassification and all of this that we should not do it. That's not a proper, proper way to answer the problem. So I would do one, but I would do also a bone scan at that stage of the disease. We're going to discuss later why. So it's, um, I would do both, certainly. Yeah. I would not do a... I will not do a CT anymore, because you've got a CT in the PET, it's a PET CT. So basically you do two CTs. So uh, we have a procedure for these high-risk patients that the CT, the PET PSMA CT is also injected, so they don't have to go twice in the radiology department. So we would do PET PSMA CT with contrast injection, if okay, plus a bone scan. And we will discuss why the bone scan later on. Very good. And any, any decision-making that you would find an additional scan useful here with a PSMA PET? Yeah, I think we have several reasons to uh, indeed consider a PSMA PET in this gentleman. Number one, he has, uh, I mean, his bone disease apparently is located in the ribs. And we know that there are false positive in the ribs uh, quite often with the bone scans. Uh, he may have just had a local problem. Uh, so uh, a confirmation from a second imaging would be welcome, and, and PSMA PET would probably be more specific than, than a bone scan with this regards to So that would be a good reason for me to do this. Um, I guess we would probably all agree, I'll we'll come back to that, but we probably all agree that the standard of care would be local treatment with radiation based on the STAMPI data and systemic treatment intensification. The big question, we don't have the answer uh, of is, is really should we target um, me, uh, metastasis in such a gentleman with apparently oligometastic disease with uh, stereoradiation, stereotypic radiation? And uh, having a greater idea about the extent of the disease using PSMA PET might be helpful before deciding whether we should irradiate or not the metastasis, ideally in a trial, clearly, and we are currently randomizing the question. So I think this would be helpful in, in this particular situation. 
I, I think that's all fair. I would say that we're not going to change our volume of disease characterization based on that PSMA PET. That is really based on, and uh, please advance the slide, that's really based on standard conventional imaging still at this time. Um, but for the reasons that we've just discussed, it may be interesting. So as you heard, not a right answer, but just what is your preference and what are you doing in practice? And so here's the second answer. Which of the following therapies would you choose for this patient, assuming the PSMA PET shows multiple bone metastases? Please take a moment and answer now. Because uh, we may discuss later on, it's different if it's a, a T2, a T3, or if it's a big T4. So as urologists, we probably have the patient would have had an MRI. Yes. And we would add, in the case description, we would add local staging as well. So uh, that, that I believe that's important. Yes. It was just to wait, huh? Yeah, you, thank you. Yes, often these patients will have an MRI of the prostate as well. And so to look here, it looks like we've done an excellent job in not choosing A. ADT alone is the wrong choice, and then the rest are, I think, things around which we could have conversation, and I can see that there's quite, um, quite a display here, but the majority of, the most common answer here is ADT and AR-targeted therapy or an ARI and radiation to the prostate, which is, I think, a great answer, and we also see some people choosing the triplet. So very interesting answers, and we're going to, in the interest of time, move past this survey, please, to the next slide. Thank you. Oh, and another, another question here. What is your rationale for using ADT monotherapy? Well, no one's using it, so that's, that's an excellent uh, answer for this patient. But in settings in which you would use ADT monotherapy, why would you choose to do that? So thank you all for answering. Okay, so the most commonly uh, suggested answer here is I use it only in frail patients, which I think is, fi is fair. And then the next com most common is I don't use it anymore. These are very good answers. I feel like uh, the message is getting out. So thank you for saying that. Those who had other answers, really um, the safety profile and things are, are, are mentioned here. Next slide, please. All right. So let's just talk a little bit more about sort of those answers and, and what we reviewed and think about it in terms of this patient that we diagnosed with de novo metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. This is a low-volume case. Bertrand, what do you think about as a urologist? But I think that the response were clear. Uh, the new standard of care is ADT plus one of the AR pathway inhibitors. So that's easy. As a urologist, I say, you know, you guys haven't discovered anything because this is what we've been doing for 20 years with maximal androgen blockade. I remember writing a uh, editorial on this when Karim and, uh, and uh, Stampede T published Latitude and, uh, Latitude and Stampede. And uh, I mean, the problem is that as urologists, we didn't have good agents, so we had a very minimal benefit. No, with these drugs, I mean, we're back to where we were with all of this started. So that's the starting point. And then you say, okay, what, what, what are the discussion today? The discussion today is uh, about the triplet and even the quadruplet, because we tend to forget that in piece one, there were 25% uh, of the patients who received the quadruplet treatment. So who need chemotherapy, who need radiotherapy? And then I would say, question for the future. Uh, Karim already mentioned who needs metastatic targeted therapy when you have a PET PSMA. 
My favorite question is, uh, are we not over-treating a lot of these patients and is there a group of patients we can treat for a shorter period of time? And then it's everything about the impact of genetic, but I think that uh, already the most important is really everybody should get ADT plus RI. And that should not be discussed anymore. And then the rest will be this discussion. And a lot of work to be done in research for the oligometastatic patient and for the duration of treatment. Absolutely. And genetic testing should be performed in all metastatic patients. Another thing that we should just comment on and mention, not necessarily for treatment now, but for family implications and potential treatment in the future. And as we have just heard from Bertrand, the treatment for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer must include ADT plus an AR-targeted agent at a minimum. And this is really based on multiple trials that looked at doublet combinations and found benefit. And in four patients who want to use chemotherapy, which we can see, of course, was initially studied as a doublet, we can add additional treatment on there as well and make a triplet. But these doublets all showed improvement in overall survival as compared to a single ADT agent approach. So to, to focus a little bit differently, if we have a different patient, a 62-year-old, also a PSA of 30, but now we have eight bone metastases on a bone scan, a CT scan with no visceral metastatic disease, a Gleason score again, of, here we have a Gleason 7. This patient is well with no comorbidities. Which of the following therapies would you choose for this patient? And this is a high-volume patient, in case that was ambiguous on that last slide. Great. So the most common answer here is the triplet of ADT plus docetaxel plus an AR inhibitor. And then we can see the next most common is ADT and an AR inhibitor, with ADT and docetaxel being a little less common. And so again, we're really focusing on intensified therapy, which is the right approach here. Next slide, please. All right, and so now we'll just talk a little bit about combination treatment and, and what, is, what are we really expecting in this case? What do you think, Kareem? Well, for, first, I'm glad that, that people can use this one. Um, that, that really people didn't select ADT alone again. This is really great. Uh, five years ago or seven years ago, we would have probably all used ADT alone, which means that we've made progresses for, for these men. I'm also glad that only a minority of people in the room selected ADT plus dostaxel because the, the real debate is really whether we should use ADT plus an AR drug, uh, which, which is fine, or a triplet treatment with ADT dostaxel and an AR drug. And I'm saying that because we have now clear evidence, and I'll come back to that in a minute, uh, from several phase three trials that ADT dostaxel is not sufficient. If you're using chemotherapy, you should use an AR drug, unless there is, of course, a strong contraindication, which almost uh, that doesn't really exist if your patient is fit enough for chemotherapy. So I, I think this, this, is, this is really good. Now, my preference would have been for uh, the triplet treatment based on the evidence. I'll come back to that in a second again. Uh, this uh, gentleman, similar to the one before, is rather young and fit. This is important. We're not speaking about an 80, 85 old gentleman with multiple comorbidities, but here, 62, I think he had moderate comorbidities. He could be a, 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 a potential candidate for chemotherapy. And most often, patients actually accept 
chemo, dostaxal chemotherapy when we are telling them that this is appropriate for them. It's actually more doctors who are sometimes reluctant to speak about chemotherapy and explain the details of how it works, how we should deliver it, the side effects, and organize everything. But patients, when, when, when you were explaining, I mean, some of them say, no, thank you, but it's really a minority in my experience. I guess we probably share that. So um, let, let's review briefly the, the, the data. Uh, piece one amongst uh, the phase three trial that address the question of, of what we call triplet and triplet, sorry we're using this, this wording, means ADT, dostaxel, and an AR axis inhibitor, either by synthesis inhibitor or, or AR uh, inhibitor. So, piece one, I guess, was the first phase three trial to address this question randomly. Uh, what we, uh, this is obviously a positive phase three trial in the overall population, but most importantly, uh, in the dostaxel population. Most of the patients in the trial received dostaxel as a backbone treatment, and as you can see, our PFS was dramatically improved, twice better uh, in, the, in the triplet as compared to the doublet, and overall survival was also improved with, with 25% reduction in the risk. And actually, a lady here is, uh, is mostly responsible for, for, for what we did. So at the end, at least, we, 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 should, we should applaud. So uh, th that was really good. But the question for, for many of us was really, should we treat all patients with a triplet or not? And uh, we have a first answer when separating patients according to how many metastases they have in their bones what we call high volume versus low volume, you know, pretty much your cutoff is three to, to four bony metastases, if you will, to make it easy. For high volume patients, again, there's clear benefit in overall survival on top of the, or the graphic progression-free survival benefit. In patients with low volume disease, our PFS is clearly impacted. Overall survival is just immature. Most men were alive when we did the analysis, as you can see here, this is the upper, um, uh, upper right uh, Kaplan-Meier figures on, on this slide. So you, as you can see, most patients are alive. We need a longer follow-up to see whether overall survival is impact. Okay, so this was the first. Then we had a couple of months afterwards, we had Aracens uh, delivering data at ASCO-GU a year ago. This is, this is the purest of, of this phase three trial, because all these men were randomized to receive ADT dostaxel plus or minus darolutamide. Very large trial, very clear uh, um, data. Overall survival is significantly and clinically meaningfully improved, with a 32% reduction in the risk of death, favoring, again, the triplet arm. Very clear difference. So uh, we also see a difference in, in terms of time to castration resistance. Uh, this is the, the, the right-hand side uh, curves. Again, and this is important, remember, to patients. Patients hate to see their PSA rising, and of course they hate to see their uh, the symptoms and radiographic progressions. So this is also very important uh, clinically to patients and psychologically to patients on top of your overall survival, which will eventually convince everybody, including 
um, payers and the, and the agencies. So clear trial, clear data, three drugs better than two, clearly confirming the piece one data. Yes, uh, well, Bertrand. Well, if you can come back one sure. slide before, okay. because this is something we notice in Oops. the Arasens. Actually, oh. you should look at the PFS of the patient in the ADT plus docetaxel arm alone. You know, it's very, very short. Huh? So, I mean, when we're giving, and an, for this patient, it means it's not really, uh, it's not really docetaxel no or never. It's docetaxel no or later. So, this patient, they're going to get docetaxel anyway. So the question is not about do they need docetaxel, but what is the optimal time to give docetaxel? And when we look at the old difference, like Karim said, there is overwhelming evidence that docetaxel works better at the beginning. All right. And, and more recently, we had the updated analysis of Enzamet, which is a complex trial, um, but again, a large phase three trial, academic work, Approximately 500 men received ADT dostaxel as the standard of care, and obviously half of them were randomized to receive enzalutamide. The overall trial is positive, favoring the uh, enzalutamide arm. And then when you dig into more details, of course, it, it becomes more complex because you, you, you have uh, smaller groups. What, what I like to, 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 to show is that actually low-volume patients similar, if not more, than high-volume patients seems to benefit from the triplet therapy, uh, as uh, reported here. Again, you're not directly comparing them, but you know, if you take just low volume, for example, the hazard ratio clearly favors three drugs versus two. Again, there will be still debate as to whether we should treat some patients with two, say, met bony metastases with chemotherapy. This is still an open debate, and there, there is sometimes discrepancy between the U.S. And, and Europe, or at least some Europeans, with this regards, and, and, and that's a to totally fine debate, of course. But it means that it's, it's not just counting the metastases which is important. Here we're mostly debating and showing you data about men with de novo metastatic disease. And please remember that for these men with de novo disease, metastatic disease is just a bad thing. Regardless as whether you have two metastases or 20, that's not a good news. I'm sorry to say so. We'll come back to patients who relapse with oligometastatic disease. And this is a completely different scenario. These men can, can do very well, and, and there, there would be more debate as to whether intensification is truly appropriate or not. But for de novo men, they don't do well, and they tend to benefit from intensification. And I think this is very important to, to remember. All right, let's move maybe to, to a PCC. Would you sure. like to yeah, come in that one? So APCCC, as everyone knows, is a, a wonderful forum at which people from around the world get together to talk about the data, understand the clinical trials more clearly, and debate areas of gray data. And specifically, this is one of the questions that was answered by the APCCC panel, really thinking about treatment of synchronous high volume or de novo high volume metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer 
And this, to be clear, is defined by conventional bone scan and CT scan imaging. And we can see that there is still quite, there was quite a split in 2021 when this question was last asked, with ADT and an AR targeted agent being the majority of this split, and then ADT, docetaxel, and ARI being the next most common, the triplet we just talked about, and ADT, docetaxel being 11%. No ADT alone, I should note. And Kareem, just correct me if I'm wrong, this is actually just as piece one was starting to come out in terms of timing to put into context. Yeah, you're very right, Alicia. We met actually mostly virtually, unfortunately, yes. in October. Uh, so the piece one data were just out at ESMO for a month, basically. So it was really a brand new thing. People didn't really have the time to digest the data, were maybe wondering whether this was true or not. Uh, and, uh, and the paper was not out uh, already uh, yet, and, and we didn't have the arrests uh, yeah. data out. So, but but already, you know, people were split basically yeah. be, between a triplet and and, and no chemotherapy. Uh, I think this has changed uh, more yeah, no, more no, recently it, in, no, in the has, last APCC uh, consensus discussion. No, it, yeah, no, it has increased in number for those who recommend the triplet. Interestingly, ADT plus docetaxel is almost fading away, so we reach almost the point we can say what you should not do is ADT and ADT plus docetaxel. If you have an AR pathway inhibitor available, which we know many places on the planet unfortunately don't, but if you have privilege of the riches, I mean, it's getting more patient recommended the triplet. Yes, and you know the, the ESMO guidelines are not yet updated. Tw these are the, the guidelines from 2020. Uh, Kareem, again, uh, these, these are expected to change, potentially. Absolutely, but it, it's great to see that the guidelines are outdated in just two years, yes. meaning that we're making progresses. Yes. Um, you know, we, we could rewrite this almost completely with, with uh, the recent knowledge, which is just great. And indeed, we, we, we are currently working on, on an updated uh, uh, guidelines uh, at ESMO for prostate cancer. Hopefully, we will have this out in, uh, next year or so. Yes, and notice ADT alone, not an option even in 2020. So here's a, an interesting slide and discussion. Who really should receive this intensified triplet therapy? I'd love to hear from both of you. And we can see on the slide some of the factors that I'm sure we're thinking about in this decision making. Sure, yeah. I, I, we, we, we've tried to make it easy to put in green what we, we think is a strong data where we probably almost all agree. And the orange is more the, the gray zone or the orange zone, you call it uh, the color you like, where you, you really can debate based on the data and probably uh, on, a, on an individual patient basis. So green, de novo disease, most of the trials we, we briefly reviewed for you were done in this space. So the evidence is really strong. Intensification is really needed for these men. For men relapsing, those are subgroups in some of the trials, not all, actually. High risk, high volume, I think everybody agrees that intensification is needed, probably, honestly, a triplet if a patient is fit for a chemotherapy. Those are really terrible diseases. As Bertrand Wright said it, if you're not using chemotherapy right now, 
You may not have the opportunity to, to do that when the patient progresses uh, with CRPC. And we now have clear evidence from both Arasense and Peace one and probably Enzamet, to be honest, that indeed three drugs is better than two. Gray or orange zone, recurrent disease, smaller subgroups, low volume disease, again, RPFS is improved, uh, but OS is immature. We may have updated analysis, say, next year in PIS1, so stay tuned. I have no clue, to be honest. We don't know. And of course, you need also to, to put your medical judgment there. Some patients, we, you know, we selected the two first patients uh, tonight as 50-year-old and 62-year-old gentlemen with minimal comorbidities, so that's quite obvious. We should really intensify those men. But we also see patients 70, 75, you know, some comorbidities, what should you do? And, and it's not easy, of course, but you, you, you need to, to use your medical judgment. Sometimes take your time, send your patients to the cardiologist, fix the diabetes, and then reassess whether the patient is or not candidate for chemotherapy, and we'll come back to that. Thank you for going through that. So just to summarize, overall uh, survival is improved by targeting more pathways. At a minimum, that is going to be ADT plus an AR pathway inhibitor. And for many patients, that may also include ADT, docetaxel, and an AR pathway inhibitor. Lest we not forget, too, for low-volume patients, we can radiate the prostate itself in, in, in patients and, and improve survival as well. We also have to recognize that this is a heterogeneous population. We're increasingly learning the biology behind that, but we currently use clinical factors, disease-related factors, patient factors to try to make these decisions as you've heard everyone discuss and really match the right patient to the right therapy. And ADT plus one of the AR pathway inhibitors, really the standard of, of care, triplet can be considered in some patients as well and, and does make a very big difference, we think. All right, thank you so much. So, uh, Bertrand, would you mind sharing part of, uh, uh, of, of this one? Yeah, so uh, assuming everything we said and you said is right, that uh, there is a subgroup of patients that benefit from triplet therapy with chemotherapy, we hear a lot, and we, we, we hear a lot physicians mostly speaking about patient concern about uh, intensified treatment. And uh, I mean, we all have the opportunity to do a lot of uh, meetings and board, and we often see, yeah, but you know, it's chemotherapy. So they are concerned about chemotherapy. So we would like to dig in a little bit more into that, and I will come with the uh, kind of a provocative assessment, which is, Having traveled a lot, I believe that it's more a physician concern than a patient concern. So that uh, there's been a little bit of chemotherapy bashing here around, so we need to understand really the fundamentals around that. So this is the typical case where it's getting indeed more complicated. It's a 79 years old man. He's nine, you know, but you know, he deteriorated a little bit in the last six months, reason why is GP asked for a blood sample, including PSA, and he's got a PSA 267. He's got five bone metastasis. 
He's got uh, two lymph nodes larger than two centimeters and what really looks probably like small lung metastasis. He's got a Gleason, 9, a Gleason score of nine. We did a G8 score because it's recommended by all guidelines. It's very easy, take five minutes. It's 11, so it's okay, but no more. And it's got severe, it's got a series of comorbidity, including diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and he's on metformin, losartan, aspirin, and simvastatin. Oop. So, assuming that patient would receive chemotherapy, what would be the most common concern that the patient or you would report about giving chemotherapy? And I think you can give more than one, if I remember well, no? Correct, yes. You, you can really do multiple votings. So basically, you all concern. I'm getting old. The highest is 36 persons. So what do you think about that? Do you share these concerns? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, the general feeling of patients, at least, when, when we speak to me, is I think mostly the nausea of a meeting from males, of, of course, we hear a bit, but you know, most of these men who are 70 don't have necessarily so many hairs remaining. So it, it, Even at 58, you don't have It happens, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so, yeah, the nausea of emitting and fatigue are probably the, the most important concern pe pe patients are anxious about. Um, they, they don't necessarily know about the hematological toxicity, and the hair, again, not a big deal. So, yeah, quite, on, quite in line with what is reported. Okay, let's move. Okay, so, Alicia, you've been doing a lot of uh, work around, I would say, patient-physician relationship. What, what, what do you think about, what's your experience? It's really, in a man like this, is really chemotherapy a, wor a word that scares patients, or is it scaring the doctors. Yeah, I want to emphasize that point that you made, that I think that this concept scares the doctors more than the patients, at least in my experience, and informed patients can overcome their own concerns when those exist too, because I don't mean to downplay that. Patients have concerns too. In my clinic, at least, when patients express a fear of chemotherapy, it's often related to family members who have passed away of things like breast cancer or maybe leukemia or something that requires multiple chemotherapies, long periods of time. And so when I explain this is one agent, you only have six treatments, and, and really this is what I expect and explain that I have patients who work through chemotherapy. They work, it's in America, we, we're a bit crazy, but um, there are patients in the U.S. that work and they take an afternoon nap and they go back to work. Um, so it, it becomes much more familiar, understandable, relatable, and I think that that is something that they can pursue. But the doctors do have fears, as, as we talked about, just the idea of giving chemo, that it's worse disease, or perhaps that, um, is it really worth it? Uh, and I think we haven't answered that question, and, and at this point, it's worth it to me if it's worth it to the patient. Do you think it's important to tell them that chemo will come probably in the care pathway today? So we're speaking about timing, not having... Absolutely. Absolutely. And that also helps patients. 
And so, you know, SIOG, which is the International Society of, of Geriatric Oncology, has put together some guidance to help us and really to think through are patients fit enough for chemotherapy or not. And the, the, the way that you can go through the G8 screening tool to get a sense of their fitness or frailty is one of the ways that we can do that in a systematic way, uh, as you can see here on the left. And that's a very interesting uh, guidance piece for anyone who's interested in, in looking into it and relatively easily done in a clinical practice. On the right, we can see that we do need to be aware of adverse events, including neutropenia and some fatigue and, and certainly febrile neutropenia as our patients are older especially. And we can think about things like growth factor support to get them through treatment because, again, they're not getting any younger. So if we use it now, they're probably fitter and will be a better chance to get through their treatment than when they're a few years older and need it in the future. Oops. So if we think about the different adverse event profiles, just to run through this uh, briefly, we see them from Aracense here, again, suggesting that uh, when we're comparing docetaxel in both of these arms here, darolutamide is not really increasing the risk of neutropenia or febri febrile neutropenia. Um, and, and really isn't substantially changing the adverse event profile much at all in the Aracense trial. In the Enzamet trial, which included patients who had enzalutamide added to an ADT docetaxel backbone, we can see that there may be some changes in things like neuropathy or nail changes, but we're not seeing dramatically increased febrile neutropenia. Again, so this triplet combination, adding an AR-targeted agent to the chemotherapy and ADT backbone is not really harming our patients from those most dangerous side effects if they're safe enough for chemo to begin with. And again, we see this in, in piece one, as we've heard that we're not really adding so much to toxicity. We need to watch blood pressure. We need to watch LFTs. But these are what we would do anyway with these agents. So I think that we, we can conclude, and the first and most important thing is that with modern ARI, those that have been tested, patient and physician, should be reassured that proven that it's given by people who know how to do, how to do it, especially using uh, GCSF combination of chemotherapy where MI does not increase the toxicity of chemotherapy. That was not taken for granted. We've done 20 trials with chemotherapy in the metastatic CRPC. It was not obvious. So people can be reassured if they need chemotherapy one day, it's not going to be worse to give it now, and we believe it's going to be better. And just maybe before we move to that, I'd like to discuss very briefly the GCSF question. I think this is very important. Of course, it's been impossible to randomize the role of GCSF in this setting. Um, I have to say that in JETIC 15, and uh, Genelis here, who, who was leading this trial, Initially, the French trial that we did, testing the Staxa randomly, we had two deaths due to chemotherapy. And then we amended the trial, and the IDMC asked us to do that, to make GCSF mandatory. And then we had no more death. Of course, it's hard to know whether this is significant or, or anything, but the, the neutropenic fever incidence is dramatically reduced and very likely the chemotherapy-related death in, in this particular disease. Uh, in my practice, I'm using GCSF systematically in these patients. I can do that in France. I know in some other countries, you have to prove that your patient has experienced already uh, neutropenic fever before you can prescribe. 
but here we can do primary prophylaxis, and I think this is really appropriate, uh, to, to be honest. And, and, and most of the toxicity from chemo is gone, thanks to the, to the GCSF. All right, let me uh, move to, to a different question here. So uh, we now have an, another patient, patient uh, number four. 68-year-old man, PSA is 15. He has bony metastasis, thoracic, lumbar vertebra, and ribs. so probably five lesions or so. Gleason uh, score is bad, nine. And he has a history of coronary artery disease and hypertension, which are both well-controlled for some time. And you can, see, you can see the natural history of what, what happened. Uh, back in 2014, uh, cardiac problems, prostatectomy four years later for localized disease. He was unfortunately lost to follow-up. And he comes back to you with evidence of bone metastasis with mild symptoms. This is not very, you know, in my experience, not, not very often, but it happens. Someone who disappears and comes back with, with metastasis. And this is actually reflected by trials because this, these patients were rare. So we, we have a hard time telling you actually what we should do or not. So let's see. You decide to recommend systemic therapy with ADT and an AR drug. Whoops. So which parameter do you consider most important when deciding optimal and best AR inhibitor or AR axis inhibitor for your patients? Accessibility of a drug, adverse events, disease-related parameters such as the volume, whether it's de novo or relapse, PSA, molecular markers, drug-drug interactions. Remember this one had previous cardio hypertension uh, and some other comorbidities patient functional ability. And again, remember you can do multiple voting. It's not like the protocol elections. <laughs> All right, number two adverse events, but it's quite split. Any comment about that, Alicia? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I'm glad that we could choose multiple options because for some patients, we need to consider multiple things. And adverse event profile, absolutely very important. But we also, I, I really think, have to think about those disease-related parameters. Are we going to really want to use chemotherapy? Is the patient fit for chemotherapy? Is this, you know, high-volume disease? That's usually the preference that I have for, for chemotherapy. Uh, but not always, I, I should say. There's flexibility. And the comorbidities, they always have to matter because we have to take care of the whole patient and so those are important as well. All right. Okay, let's move on and come back to the slide if you don't mind, please. Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, we, we already discussed part, part, part of that. Um, what about access? Um, and, um, you know, typically in, in the U.S., I guess, you have a, an all-year access as compared to, to what we have in, in France and in Belgium or in Europe in general. But the insurance may be challenging to, to convince uh, as opposed to all a European system where basically when it's approved, it, and reimbursed, it's reimbursed for everybody. So is that a big issue for your patients in the U.S.? It can be a big issue if we have a, a, a wish to give a specific agent, but luckily we do have multiple agents available, and so if we can't get one, sometimes we can get another, but that's not always the case. Right. It can be an issue. Okay. Um, okay, let, let's move on, because I think we're getting short of time. Uh, and let, let's you know, discuss more of the comorbidities. Remember, this gentleman had, had several comorbidities, and, and what we're showing here on the screen 
probably sounds familiar to you because we, we all see these patients uh, obese, um, hypertension, etc., uh, etc., et and we have to deal with, with that in terms of toxicity, but also in terms of drug-drug interaction. Maybe something we haven't paid enough attention to in in, in the past. Um, cardiovascular effect of ADT. Also, Alicia, if you don't mind, I will ask you to, to comment on that. Sure. So again, we have to recognize that ADT can intensify or increase multiple cardiovascular risk factors like uh, like cholesterol level, increasing abdominal adiposity, uh, and, and some of our AR signaling aid inhibitors can increase things like fluid retention, blood pressure, that can make cardiovascular comorbidities more intense. And so we have to monitor, and one that I should not forget, of course, is diabetes. So blood sugar management is absolutely important, and ADT is shown as early as 12 weeks to induce some level of insulin insensitivity. So monitoring all of these, collaborating with our primary care doctors, cardiologists when we have them is really important. And that's really just what this card uh, slide speaks to, addressing reversible cardiovascular risk factors, which is a good thing whether patients are on treatment or if they're just living with a heart, which they all are. So again, I think this is a key message. We, there's almost never an emergency to start one of those drugs. For example, in metastatic hormone-sensitive disease, you, you have some weeks or some months um, before you, you can do that. And this is really an opportunity to speak with the, the cardiologist and to try to fix some of the issues the patients may have before starting. I think this is, this is important. Uh, comments about cardiovascular toxicities of abiraterone and zalutamide because that's been reported. Um, Alicia? Oh, sure. So as I just mentioned, there is some evidence, this is a meta-analysis that shows that abiraterone may be associated with some cardiac toxicity. Actually, there's a signal there for enzalutamide too, but it's a slightly less, and hypertension as well. For both of these agents can be affected. So again, just managing and monitoring is very, very important. Right. And I think this is something we discovered with time, because enzalutamide, when it came first, was not really demonstrated to be associated with hypertension in the very advanced stages, while abiraterone was, because also we expected abiraterone yes. to, to be associated with side effects from the phase one, phase two experience and, and its mechanism of action. But indeed, the, the, the incidence of hypertension seems to be quite similar, actually, and the excess is quite, quite similar. So this is a key message also for you guys. Uh, and, and ladies, um, make sure you monitor blood pressure in patients receiving enzalutamide as well as abiraterone. And this probably applies to abalutamide as well. And, but we, we knew it yeah. already for first generation uh, anti-androgen, so with bicalutamide, nilutamide. So many of the urologists know that, for instance, a drug like bicalutamide never made it in monotherapy in the US because of an excess of cardiac toxicity, and there's plenty of real-world evidence who show that actually the big problem of the clinical trial is that we do super-select patients. They can't have a history of cardiovascular disease. And if you look at real-world evidence, there's a lot of work done by somebody in London named Mieke van Emmelrijk. Actually, she sees dramatic uh, increase in cardiovascular. Like yeah. Alicia said, a lot of this is done also to the fact that we don't monitor patients properly. All right. Uh, another point about concomitant medications. This is a large risk, cardiovascular disease, and some others. Is that an issue, potentially, in your practice? And I'll ask the question to I the mean, two of you. Th that's something I discover, like, 
in uh, December 2020. Why? Because my hospital transited to a new EMR. It's epic, whatever. It's uh, you know, a little bit of advertisement, but it's epic. And suddenly it started to tell me, oh, you want to give enzalutamide to that patient? There is severe con- you know, uh, drug, drug interaction. So uh, this is something you discover once a machine, and that's a sad story actually, is telling you that for many of these drugs, um, I mean, we realize that actually the choice of the ARI may be done for a certain proportion of patients by the EPIC system himself, who are going to say there is too much of drug-drug interaction. So Actually, this is something you, you we are clearly... closely uh, with you, with your pharmacist, with us? We can. Our computer also tells us, and, and actually, I think we rely on the local pharmacies, too, yeah. to run interactions and make sure as they're dispensing. But I do have a pharmacist that I reach out to because there can be questions of this is an intermediate interaction. This is a, an, a moderate interaction. Well, does that mean I should act on that or should I, am I safe to go on? And so to have access to a pharmacist to ask the question is useful. And please remember that regarding this drug-drug interaction, what they will do, for example, in zalutamide, is mostly reduce the efficacy of the other drug, not increase the side effects. I mean, if it were increasing the side effects, the patients will come back to you and complain. But it's not the case. They don't have necessarily side effects, but their drug for cardiac problems is just inactive. All right? So it's hidden. So we, we need really to understand that. It's very important. All right. So proactive management of side effects is extremely important. That's super obvious. And there are differences uh, between the drugs uh, in, in that respect. So this is something we need to learn to make the, the best choice for the patients. So choosing a lower approach, how can we move beyond the expectant management? Those are the timeline of registration pharma CRPC big phase three studies. Starting in, back in the 2000, well, mostly nothing except the stack cell. And then the last decade was just fantastic. I'm not going to detail everything. But you see many, many, many good news for the patients with CRPC. And hopefully we'll, we'll see, we'll have some good news also this year or already maybe some. All right. What about the very unique and specific uh, setting of non-metastatic CRPC, or M0 CRPC, as we tend to call it in the clinic? So how do you define that? Your patient needs to have a rising PSA, indicating that that cancer is progressing, so you you need to make sure that this is not an artifact or a mistake from from the lab, so several uh, measures to, to make sure. Patients need to be castrated, so please double-check your serum testosterone, lower than 0.5 nanogram per mL, and no radiographic evidence of disease based on conventional imaging. So you really need to have these three events to make the definitions. Okay, let's, let, me, let us move to, to this gentleman, 75-year-old man, very typical age for this particular situation. PSA is now five, and it's rapidly doubling every seven months or so. Burn scan is normal, CT scan is normal, testosterone castrated. Previous history of myocardial infarction, five years ago, is on statin aspirin beta blocker. He has a mild sign of cognitive impairment, 
within the last two years or so. Nothing big, but it's there. And you see the, the, the history of, uh, of this cancer is, is now on continuous ADT. PSA is rising and actually rising fast. Is about, and is anxious about it. Believe me, they are anxious, these patients. You probably know that for those of you who do clinics. I, I emphasize this PSA doubling time, and this is because this is a strong uh, pronostic factor in the setting, the strongest actually, besides the Gleason score. And uh, this is very true for patients with PSA billing time lower than six months. And generally speaking, 10 months is a good cutoff if you really want to cut off. And, and I'm not, not going to detail everything, but it's really obvious you see these Kaplan-Meier curves. All right. So now it's your turn to work. What would you recommend to my patient? Would you just wait and carry on with ADT, understanding that the burn scan and the CT scans are normal? So you just spend your time in the clinics, you know, telling the patients, hey, hold on, nothing is, is you know, an emergency here. You just can carry out with the ADT, and I will scan every whatever time, and we will intervene if ever you develop metastasis. Number two you will uh, intervene earlier with apalutamide, darolutamide, or enzalutamide, or one of your choice. Number three, you scan the patients using a PSMA PET, not you know, just regular conventional imaging. Please vote. All right, I think this is very clear, at least between A and B, uh, which is wait or intervene. Um, Bertrand, maybe. Do, would you mind comment? Yeah, no, no. I think uh, once again, it's a matter of uh, understanding what was the trial. I mean, the, we, we know. Let's be clear. We know that apalutamide, darolutamide, enzalutamide, abiraterone extend overall survival. Historically, we did consider that in order to be at risk of death, first you had to have received docetaxel. Then you had to be metastatic CRPC. Let's be clear, the first message of this three trial is that if your PSA rise with a PSA doubling time of less than one year, I would say around six months, you're gonna die. And you're gonna die from the disease, so you should get escalated. And uh, whether you do a PET PSMA or this won't change anything on the overall philosophy. It may change that some would say is the PET PSMA positive, I can't give Apadaro, I have... No, 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 that's no. The bottom line is, as we discussed for the metastatic CRPC, the standard of care was ADT plus ARI. This is another clinical condition to which you are at indicator of maximal androgen blockade. And we have no three, we had one, that was metastatic CRPC, then we had metastatic and non-metastatic with a rapid PSA, and we have newly diagnosed. And then that's the bottom line. And then if you want to do a PET PSMA, you can. I don't know why, but you can do it once you've started your patient on APA, DARO, and ENZA. Then maybe, you do whatever maybe we, you want, we, you're free. Yeah. We will come back to, to, to the discussion about uh, next generation imaging uh, later on. Uh, can we have um, the slide? Yeah. All right. Okay. So. Um, those are the, 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 the data uh, from, from, from the trial. I can't hear, even remember who should speak about that. But uh, uh, basically, as you can see, they are, they are the same. If you're asking me blindly 
which one is which one, apalutamide, enzalutamide, darutamide, in terms of efficacy, I would have a hard time finding which one is which one, to be honest. Uh, the, the great thing is that all the three are very active. Metastasis-free survival was tremendously improved in these three trials, and that was not necessarily a given. You would have tell, tell me that 10 years ago, I would have, you know, signed immediately. We did denosumab trial, we did zibotentin trial, atrazentin trial in the space, and it was negative. either negative or just mildly positive. But here, there's no discussion. We are clearly preventing the onset of metastasis, which by its own is important for patients. Nobody likes to, to develop metastasis. So efficacy is there. And of course, most importantly, of all survival is improved in these free, free trials. So the consistency, I think, is very important scientifically to us. It's really telling us, as Bertrand just alluded to, early intervention is needed. Okay, you, you, you cannot just wait and say, well, everything is fine, let's wait, etc., etc. This would be a, clearly a mistake. So efficacy is there and very similar. So, again, we're not going to spend too much time, I guess, about the efficacy because it's fully crystal clear and this is something we, we've discussed already many times in the last three, three years or so. Metastasis-free survival was a primary endpoint, big difference and sherry on the top of the cake of all survival is clearly improved, even though many patients in the control arm had access to salvage AR drugs, and this is important to remember. Okay, but maybe it's more complicated uh, about what we should do for, for these men. And Bertrand, please, uh, no, what, clearly, what do you think about this, this PSMA PET imaging case? Yeah, cl clearly the problem comes from the design of the trial, where the, the, we, we chose patients with a, a, a rapid PSA progression with a negative bone scan CT scan. Why? Because if they had a positive bone scan CT scan, by the time we started the trial, they were already metastatic CRPC, and using a placebo was not allowed. So there is a confusion around that. This was a group of patients. No, it is obvious that if your PSA is rising rapidly and you, you use more modern uh, imaging technology, we did study with all body MRI. This is a study from uh, Germany with PET PSMA. And you look at this patient, I mean, it's a no-brainer. You're going to find a lot of metastasis. And I would like to find that study extremely reassuring because actually it confirmed that these patients are metastatic CRPC and that they should receive, that they should receive uh, a rapid treatment. So that, that's a no-brainer if you do so. Now, the problem will be uh, the occasional patient you will find, and with as a rapid PSA progression, and has only one bone metastasis or two bone metastasis. And that's where we are still discussing, oh, and, 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 and some people would actually transpose what has been done in hormone naive patients and say, maybe that's an opportunity to delay the treatment. So I would like your opinion on that. So assuming Mr. X 
as a PET PSMA and it shows only one bone metastasis. So what would you do then? Would you say, oh, maybe that's a good opportunity to delay APA, DARO, and ENZA, which are, you know, expensive, some toxicity, and recommend stereotaxic body radiation therapy. So please vote. And keep in mind, you can do both also if you want. All right. Alicia, would you like to comment? Sure. So I think Bertrand said it best a little while ago. If you're going to do a PSMA PET in these patients, expect that they will be positive, and then figure out what you want to do in terms of potential metastasis-directed therapy is my perspective. But it is not a decision to, to intensify their systemic therapy. You have to intensify their systemic therapy. There's an overall survival prolongation, an MFS prolongation, and stabilization of quality of life. So that's really not a question, and it looks like people are, are making that choice and, and hopefully going to add uh, that agent and intensify. And if you have the opportunity to use a PSMA PET to do metastasis-directed therapy and perhaps change the trajectory of the disease, we don't know yet, then I think that that can be done, especially if it's on a clinical trial or if it's something that's available in your practice. Absolutely. And there are very nice clinical trials done where actually in the patient receiving stereotaxic radiation therapy, they randomize keeping the AR pathway or stopping it after six months. So these clinical trials are giving a lot of, you know, things to, 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 to design new strategy. But at the present time, it has to come as an add-on. No? I, I think we, we all of, of three really agree that Given the consistency of what we just showed you from three large phase three trials showing MFS benefit and overall survival benefit, we should apply this evidence. We should treat the patient systematically, and then maybe we may consider serotactic uh, radiation if we believe this is appropriate, and ideally we should do that in the context of a randomized trial. I think this is really the, the, the best medical advice we, we, we are providing. Okay, let's come back to, 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 to the slides because we, I, I'd love to, to keep some time for questions and hopefully you're sending so them. We discussed this, I think, so we can move forward. So, so clearly, this is, yeah. uh, this, is, uh, this was go yours. Ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Please. So clearly, we mentioned that already. They should be start on an ARI and then new technology are there to inform, but we should not change the approach of these patients. All right. Alicia, hey, this is yours. Thank you. So I think I mentioned this, but just to really dig into it, quality of life is something that is so important in this patient population whose primary symptoms are probably related to the androgen deprivation therapy that they're using to treat their disease rather than their cancer. And so ensuring that we have better cancer control while we try to not intensify their symptom burden related to treatment is really critical. So I think we're here to discuss these questions. How has, has early intensification really replaced ADT in this patient population? I think we've suggested yes. And, and what are we still thinking about? Is it worth adding to this burden on the patient? Uh, and, and some things that patients may express are whether that PSA is actually rising fast enough. Is the PSA doubling time really at that 10 months or less, which is really the target population for the trials? And in my clinical practice, I try to mirror the trials. And, and how effective are the agents in relation to the, the way that they can maintain quality of life? 
So one way we think about this, of course, is thinking about the side effect profile as they're measured by the CTCAE. These are the adverse events that are measured in the clinical trial. And if we look across these studies, we can see that generally there's similar tolerability by adverse events related to treatment with an AR pathway inhibitor as compared to treatment with ADT alone. And, and I would say some of these are called out in highlights where there are known side effects, things like increasing fatigue with uh, enzalutamide and apalutamide, and maybe rash or uh, thyroid disease with apalutamide and enzalutamide. Similar, we talked about the, the blood pressure um, questions and how we have to monitor that. But in general, we have to be aware that these agents are not especially increasing adverse events as we are improving overall survival and, and delaying time to metastasis. Here we can also see the patient's report, which is another component of quality of life. It's not just the adverse events that the doctors measure. And the patient's report, a maintenance of quality of life across these studies, as we can see here, different ways of reporting the data, but the message is the same. Patients felt very similar when they added these drugs, for the most part, as to when they were on ADT alone. And perhaps even better in, in certain subgroups especially, I remember some data you presented, urinary and bowel symptoms better for patients receiving intensified treatment on, on Aramis. So to summarize this, therapies decisions have to take into account the disease risk, that PSA doubling time, the comorbidities of the patient, the drugs the patient's on, and the drug-drug interactions, the potential for toxicities, as well as the fact that in this disease state, we're maintaining quality of life for, for in large part. And it is really worth, I think, in, from my perspective, getting that benefit in terms of disease control since we really are sacrificing very little to nothing. Actually, thank you. You, you, you. you guys sent really a number of, of questions. Uh, I saw one about osteoporosis in NMCRPC. Uh, someone said that uh, in Prosper and Spartan, a significant proportion of men develop osteoporotic fractures. Uh, so isn't that a good reason to use radiation instead of a uh, systemic treatments? I think you, you have to be careful. Huh? When you look at the MFS, the, keep in mind that you are measuring toxicity not during the whole life of the patient, but only during the time the patient is on the active drug. So basically, for the three trial, the, this time was double. So when you have uh, a side effect, it counts for one. So the patient had twice the duration to get exposed to frailty fractures. So we know that frailty fractures are a problem linked to ADT, especially. And the fact that we're not properly monitoring patients. So this is a, I like to say, it's more a problem because we haven't followed these patients well. So it, it is a significant side effect. We don't have any indication that it's aggravated by the drug itself, but it's present and we should monitor it. So. That's one of the um, typical things we should monitor, recommend regular DEXA scan, look at risk factor, this is called the Ebeling risk factor, smoker, alcohol drinker, patient with steroid problem, and you know, do not hesitate. There are low dose denosumab that can be prescribed to these patients, and you're gonna avoid most of these frailty fracture. No, I like when you say radiotherapy, keep in mind with radiotherapy, you can get compression fracture, so it's no report and more and more. So uh, I'm not sure that 
delaying treatment will have a major impact on your risk of frailty fracture if, by the way, you don't do a DEXA scan and you don't correct the problem. Yeah, as long as the patient's on ADT, that risk of fracture will continue to increase. And so guideline concurrent care is to do a DEXA scan, calculate a FRAC score, and start a bone health agent in patients. And it's very unrelated, actually, to the ADT intensification. Thank you so much. I see we have received three pages of questions. So what I suggest is that we try to do to take as much as we can with super short uh, answers if we can. Yeah. So let, let me start with, with one. Um, someone is asking, in these three randomized trials, there was no uh, ra uh, stereotactic radiation. So how, how do you know that stereotactic radiation is not appropriate? We fully agree. And I think the answer is that stereotactic radiation should be randomly assessed, and this is planned or already ongoing. But right now, it's not a standard of care. Um, maybe another one. What do you do when a patient progresses after an AR drug for M0 CRPC? Very difficult question. I'm a strong believer that there is strong cross-resistance between all these agents, abiraterin, darbolutamide, apalutamide, and zalutamide. So probably switching to the other agent is not the best choice. Then you have still have the option of chemotherapy for MCRPC, and I guess lutetium, PSMA, PARP inhibitors, and the, all the new drugs will come to, to help us. But this is still an open field, obviously, and not an easy one. How often do you perform radi radiographic assessments in M0 CRPC setting? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And uh, actually, we had an abstract at ASCO with the Aramis data looking into this. Uh, you know, how often should you, how, how often should you scan? And, and that wasn't exactly the question we asked in the abstract. What we asked was, how do these patients progress? Do they progress by PSA rising? Do they progress radiographically? Do they progress clinically? What does it look like? So we can be on the lookout for it. And importantly, it did not look like many patients progressed by pain. And that's really, really important because we know that pain is a very poor prognostic sign. And if patients were progressing predominantly by pain, we were missing something where we would hope that we, we might be missing something and hope to find it. These patients were progressing in some cases, you know, 20% of the time or so radiographically before PSA. And I just want that to be clear. This was happening with ADT alone. This was happening with ADT and, and darolutamide in this study. This has been shown in other disease states too. And so we as a field, I think, do need to come together and define what is our minimum uh, scanning strategy for these patients. And some patients who have very high risk disease, maybe we scan every six months just to keep an eye, regardless of PSA, because they don't always progress by PSA. In some patients with very responsive disease and maybe lower risk disease factors, maybe we scan every 12 months. But we haven't defined that as a field. So this is an open question that our guidelines and expert groups can come together around, and I hope we do. And just a word of caution about PET-PSMA. If you use PET-PSMA to start with and you monitor, we, we don't really know about the semantic of SUV changes under treatment. So we have to, not everything that responds is responding and not everything that progresses is progressing. So be extra careful. Staying with PSMA PET, and short answer please, someone is asking, if I do PSMA PET and I see metastasis, should I call this metastatic disease? Yeah, call whatever you do. 
you're going to give him an AR pathway inhibitor. That's it. That's the most important. All right. A question, I'll, I'll take that one if you don't mind. What treatment is left for patients progressing after PEACE-1 or RASENS regimen, so triplet treatment? Well, actually, we, we are already facing these situations post-AR and post-1 taxane, and we, we do have options. Cabazitaxel is one, level 1 evidence, radium-223 is another one, uh, PSMA lutetium since you know, last year, we know that, and for BRCA patients, we also have the PARP inhibitors, and if you don't have access to PARP inhibitor, probably carboplatin does similar job. So we do have options, and hopefully in the future, more options for, for these patients. Um, okay, what else did we have? Right. Mm. Oh, I took that one. While you're doing that, Kareem, I wonder... Um, Please. Should the, should the lack of options or concern about the lack of options ever limit what you do today for that patient who's sitting in front of you? Should you say, well, I don't know what I'll do next, so I just, I'll just not? I, I've, I, I used to use the example of what I call extension compression, meaning extension is you making the patient live longer. Compression is that you are shortening the duration of time during which they have problem. So... And actually, if you look at what you gain in terms of compressing what we're going to call the bad time, and then you have to look at time to SRE, time to next chemotherapy, you, it's always a winner to start early because yes. they live longer, but the time between the bad period is also pushed towards the end. So yeah, you're going to run in problem. Yeah, they're going to get pain. Yes, they're going to die, but it's going to happen later. And you're going to have buy good quality time, which yes. is the most important. Yes. Okay. Someone is asking, regarding the recent network meta-analysis, it showed no statistical significant overall survival benefit for triplet treatment versus NHT doublet. So why would you use the triplet? And I think this is important. Actually, this is not direct comparison. No, 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 no. Yeah. There's no randomized trial comparing ADT plus an NHT versus a triplet. So we, we just don't know. And, and uh, until we have any evidence, we have to stick to the evidence that we have showing that three drugs is better than two when the two drugs are ADT plus those tax cell. And that's it. The, the, so, the, the only group which has performing real network meta-analysis are groups who own the original data set. And the only one we know, because we all work with them, is uh, the stop cap or the ice cap. And they only have part of the data because they don't have, unfortunately, the data from the commercial. So all the rest is very, very indirect inference, and we should not look at that. All right. Still, uh, maybe a couple of questions. This is a practical one. Uh, in M1 disease, do you typically use the stack cell 50 milligram per square meter of a classical dose of 75? And, and I saw another question about a couple of patients that we mentioned during the discussion, which dosing would you typically use? I actually usually stick with the 75 milligrams per meter squared, and for the most part, I've been able to support patients through that. I, 
if I have a patient who's so frail that I want to start him lower, I then would start to question, is this really the right thing for this patient? Is, is triplet, because if I'm going to use docetaxel, I'm using an AR-targeted agent on top of it. And so is triplet really the right thing for that patient if I already want to dose reduce before I've even started? So most of the patients that I, I see uh, are, are fit enough for 75. We can get them through. We monitor them closely, use growth factor support, and that's typically where I start and hopefully where we stay to get them through their six cycles. Super. Um, another question is about why provide genomic testing when there is no drug linked to any gene approved in MCSPC? Unless we have approved drugs, we are wasting resources. We referred our recommendation about genomic testing for germline about BRCA mostly, BRCA2 and BRCA1. And this is not only because this can have consequences for the patients when it will develop MCRPC, but to be honest, mostly because the family may benefit. If we can prevent a lady from dying from ovarian cancer or breast cancer or man from, um, from prostate, well, I'm not going to speak about uh, pancreatic, then we've done all our, all our job. So this is, I think, very important. Uh, and again, there might be some consequences for the patient himself. But uh, I, uh, we, I think, acknowledge that this is for future uh, progress, progression. I, I guarantee if you test enough of your patients, you'll be able to find some whose daughters actually carry the gene and may even already have early stage breast cancer. So this is really, really important for their families. Okay, another one about PSMA, PET. Uh, regarding the use of PS, uh, PET PSMA in metastatic disease, uh, MCSPC, I see its use becoming more and more common in this scenario, but wouldn't it be important to order conventional imaging, even, oops, disappeared, okay, let me try to find it, even in patients who have had PET PSMA to have a baseline and follow up for the long term? What is your practice? Um, to be honest, the practice is that we only do bone scan to get an idea of whether it's low volume or high volume and recommend radiotherapy. Uh, for the monitoring, it depends how you monitor the patient. I mean, uh, we were lucky enough to use our old body MRI, like, you know, a few other centers. So it's a question which is important right now. If you don't have the possibility of getting PET PSMA like every six months, one year, then for sure you need a bone scan to start with. But more and more, uh, it's going to be also replacing the monitoring. For instance, in uh, hormone-naive uh, prostate cancer, we never do bone scan anymore. We just do PET PSMA, to be honest. So uh, I think depending on the accessibility of the techniques, if you're going to follow your patient with bone scan, CT scan, yes, you need one to start with. Otherwise, you're going to be in deep problems. So, yes. But I think that with time, we have to be prepared that all of this will disappear. So, as you know, Bertrand just alluded to, the role of PET imaging is evolving. We don't know everything about PET imaging. We, I think we, we just emphasized that humbly. And most importantly, we need to better assess response and progression in men with CRPC, the way we've done that 10, 15 years ago with bone scans. Uh, do we need to count the new metastases? Can we assess something bigger, etc., etc.? We, we don't really know. 
Um, novel multi-targeted combination therapy, I think we, we really have great examples now that combination is mandatory in some situations of prostate cancer, which is actually brand new. For a long time, we've been using all the drugs sequentially, one after the other ones, with actually some cross-resistance. And now we have clear evidence, at least in MCSPC, that intensification and early intensification is needed. We moved from one drug to two, and now to three drugs. And it, it may be four if needed. We'll see what PSMA targeting does. We'll see whether radiation therapy uh, should be also integrated. So, it's coming actually up front and up front. Last year of SS meeting, we had beautiful data from the Stampede group showing a right run in high-risk localized disease. And I think, I know it's not approved, but still, it's probably saving life in patients with high-risk localized disease with tremendous effect against the disease. And more data is soon to come. So I, I think we, we should really keep fighting for the good for, for all the patients. And I think that was it. Uh, I will just on time. Uh, so I'd like really to, to thank uh, Alicia and Bertrand for, for, for their fantastic presentations and, and comment tonight. And most importantly, for you for attending the session and for asking us, well, difficult questions, but this is what we were expecting. So thank you very much. Um, enjoy your, your ESMO meeting. More is to come tomorrow. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.